a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Hi, I'm Danny Bennington and welcome to my podcast. This podcast is for anyone who's been affected by cancer and menopause. I'll be speaking to special guests and menopause experts to help us find solutions to our symptoms and of course address the greater picture. We're going to talk about everything from mental health to physical health, sexual health to bone health and everything in between. Nothing is off limits. Welcome. Now is it nearly the end of August? Welcome to today's episode. How are you today? I've got so many lovely things to share with you, but before I do that, I wanted to say thank you so much for everyone who messaged saying they thoroughly enjoyed the August episodes. I know they were a bit different because I really wanted to embrace and celebrate our community of women at home. And thank you for everyone that said they really enjoyed the episode I released with my lovely husband, Tim, last week. And so today on the podcast, I've got a great guest. I'm so excited to share her with you. Before I do so, before I tell you about the episode today, let me tell you one thing that we're working on behind the scenes. We're working on an amazing walking fundraiser, big event and I want all of you to get involved. So get yourself a pair of trainers or a pair of hiking boots because from September onwards, we're all going to walk together. We've set different goals for you. You can choose a different challenge. We're going to set ourselves up to succeed. We're going to do it together and we're going to hold each other accountable. And I can't wait to properly announce the challenge and the fundraiser next week. For now, get walking get yourself a pair of trainer and just prepare yourself that you will be going out there in the rain and in the shine a little bit more often perhaps than what you have done in the last few weeks and months. And I'm very excited about what's to come. Right, Alcohol and Me was an episode I released a few months ago where I shared my own thinking around drinking, not drinking, and the difficulty that came with not drinking socially. And when I shared my thought processes and my experiences, many of you emailed and messaged saying, Danny, can you elaborate on this topic? It really resonated with many of you that it's actually perhaps not so much of a big deal for many of us to reduce our alcohol intake, but it's actually really difficult to manage these social situations. And so Maybe you want to drink less because you're not ready to give up totally. Or you're thinking, how should I handle social situations? I feel my friends would be really quite disappointed if I said I wasn't going to drink on someone's birthday, for example. Or do you think it would be easier for you to cut out booze completely? And how do you feel once you've had a drink or a few drinks too many? How do you feel the next day? Does it actually make you feel guilty? How do we navigate this? And how could we, is it possible even, reframe drinking less? And how could we look at the incredible positives that come 
with a life that is less centered around alcohol. And all of that I want to discuss with the most amazing guest. And I have brought onto the show Rosamund Dean for you today. Rosamund is a journalist, an author, a mummy, and a breast cancer survivor. And Rosamund is very well known for her most recent book. She published Reconstruction, the new breast cancer guide that will boost your well-being and protect your physical and mental health. But did you also know that Rosamund wrote a book on mindful drinking? And that is the reason why I wanted to get Rosamund onto the show today. Rosamund wrote Mindful Drinking before her breast cancer diagnosis. And I am so curious to find out why she wrote it in the first place, how that's helped her, whether she was able to moderate her drinking or what the reasons were behind even writing that book and going on this exploration. And if her behavior has changed since her breast cancer diagnosis. And without further ado, I'm going to welcome Rosamund onto the show. Welcome, Rosamund. I'm so glad you're finally on the podcast with me. How exciting. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I wanted to talk to you about so many things, especially with your recent launch of your book, Reconstruction. There were so many nuggets in there that I love. And of course, I was able to contribute a little bit about it. But I didn't know, and I don't know whether many people know, you've written a book before you wrote Reconstruction. Yes, yes. Tell us a bit about that book first. So in 2017, I wrote a book called Mindful Drinking, How Cutting Down Can Change Your Life. And the thinking behind it was that there exists lots of books about sobriety or about how to stop drinking altogether. But lots of people don't, they either don't want to do that or they don't feel ready for that or they don't feel like they can do that. And there isn't really anything to help them just cut down just drink a bit less because as we know for whatever your starting point drinking less than you currently are is only going to bring the benefits so yeah we I wanted it to be a kind of non-preachy non-judgy just really useful practical book for for all those kind of difficult moments when you drink more than you plan to and um yeah and did the book help you personally to drink a little bit less? Were you on a mission yourself to think, can I reduce my own alcohol intake? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So I wasn't, I, I wouldn't describe myself as a problem drinker. I certainly drank too much, but I would say I drank a very normal amount of alcohol for a British person who was a teenager in the 90s and kind of, you know, grew up in the noughties and when I wrote the book, I was in my 30s. And I think it was it was probably two things. It's probably partly having kids. And I think I just wasn't I wasn't the parent that I wanted to be if I was tired or hungover or, you know, a bit drunk. And it was partly that and it was also partly vanity. I was aware that I was getting older. And, you know, the effects of alcohol were showing in my skin and my waistline. And I just wanted to be healthier. And those those were the incentives for me. And then the process of writing the book was incredible because I spoke to all these amazing experts, psychologists and behaviour change experts who explained why it's so difficult to drink less alcohol and what you can do about it. And I think that's one of the really lovely things about you and your second book, Reconstruction as well, is that you are a journalist. And so you have that really 
nice critical way of maybe speaking to people or interviewing people or bringing different thought processes into your writing and into your copy. I always love reading any of your magazine articles and yeah, I just really enjoy reading what you have to write. It's great. So would you say Oh, thank you. Would you say you never really had you said you were a non problem drinker. That means alcohol didn't interfere with your daily life. You were able to always work. It didn't have an effect on your relationships or on or, or, or on anything really. Why do you think you were drinking too much? Is it purely because you looked at the amount of alcohol and you thought it's a bit more than the WHO would recommend? Um, I, I guess it was more about how I was feeling and I was becoming more aware of that as I got older. So when I wrote the book, I just turned 37. I just had my second child. I was very much, um, you know, I was just aware that it was making me tired. It was having an effect on how I looked, just having a general effect on how I felt. And I also knew that when I went out to meet friends for dinner, I would say to myself, right, I'm not going to drink too much tonight. Maybe I'll have one glass of wine with dinner and that's it. And then you get there, everyone's having cocktails. People are, you know, there's wine in the middle of the table. People will fill up your glass without asking. And it's, and it's the reality of drinking in the social situation is very different to how you plan it to be if you're trying to drink less alcohol. Yeah. And I wonder, before we go into what happened to you next and after you've written that book, I wonder if people at home are listening to this thinking, wow, when did I start drinking? Like I, you, you know, you've just been away to Austria. You know, I'm Austrian. I grew up in Austria. We had our first schnapps shots at 13, I guess, with my friends, secretly, sneakily yeah. somewhere. Um, alcohol was served to us in pubs. We had beers and white wine spritzers throughout our teens. There was no such a thing as you had to show your ID. And so it was very much part of growing up and being a teenager and a young woman. And I wonder if people at home are thinking, well, when did it start for me and how and when has it become a habit? And it's actually more normal mm -hmm. that alcohol is a habitual thing that we all do than for someone to not do it, isn't it? And that the people who don't drink are the rarity. Looking back, there weren't, I can't remember there was anyone who didn't drink. Exactly. And I do think that's changing now. More and more people are drinking less alcohol and they're or or they're completely sober. And it's not as much of a big deal as it used to be, because I certainly remember thinking if somebody didn't drink alcohol, I was like, what's wrong with them? <laughs> you know, do they are they a secret alcoholic? Do they have like some health issue that is like if you went on a date and the person didn't drink, you I would awesome. kind of run a mile. <laughs> I, I don't even know. Yeah, it's crazy to think of that now. But um, but yeah, it's 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 more normal to drink than it. it. It's the only drug, I guess, that's not just socially acceptable, but also socially expected in so many different situations because it's celebratory, but also it's you know you have a drink to commiserate, you have a drink when you're stressed. You have a drink when you're, if it's a work event to kind of, you know, oil the cogs, the social lubrication. There's so many reasons why people drink. And um, part of cutting down, what I mean, one of the most difficult parts of cutting down really is to work out what kind of drinker you are, because only then can you work out what to do about it. Because the person who 
habitually opens a bottle of wine on the sofa every evening is different to the person that has lots of work events at which there are always free drinks and an expectation to drink and they kind of have to approach it in different ways. Yeah, and I'd love to talk to you about that. But before, I want to fast forward to four years after you've um, brought that lovely book to the world. You were diagnosed with breast cancer in 2021. And tell us a little bit about that first. Yeah, so it, it was quite a shock. It was very out of the blue. I felt absolutely fine. I didn't, older people in my family had had breast cancer, but I didn't know anybody of my age that had had breast cancer. Um, so yeah, it was completely out of the blue. It was during COVID as well. So it was very kind of um, lonely, you know, I had to go to all those appointments on my own, to chemo on my own. So five days in hospital after mastectomy surgery, with, I wasn't allowed any visitors. So it was definitely a really, really difficult time. And in terms of my relationship with alcohol, it's, it's, it, because having written the book Mindful Drinking, I'd spoken to so many experts and doctors and scientists, and I knew all of the statistics and all of the facts. And actually, there's a part in Mindful Drinking about breast cancer risk, because that is such a big risk for women. It's what drinking alcohol is one of the few things that's been really proven in many different studies to have a direct causal effect on your risk of breast cancer. Um, so I knew I knew that. And, um, and I had cut down my drinking a lot, but I, I still drank sometimes. And um, when I was in chemo, I stopped drinking completely. I just didn't feel like it. it was like, it was a bit like being pregnant, I suppose. I just kind of felt queasy all the time. I was getting mouth ulcers, you know, Drink, I, I just did not feel like drinking. So it was really easy not to drink during chemo. Um, but then when you kind of emerge from treatment, and I was emerging from treatment at the same time as everyone was emerging from COVID. And so socialising was kind of starting again, and people would be like, you know, we should celebrate at the end of cancer treatment. Here's a glass of champagne. And it's very, it's just, it's so ingrained and the sense of expectation is that people are kind of disappointed in you if you don't want to drink, if you don't want to join them in a celebratory glass of champagne. And I, I also find this is one of the things that's particularly hard about moderate drinking as opposed to complete sobriety, because if you only drink occasionally, then if you go to somebody's birthday party and you don't drink, there's definitely the sense of them thinking <laughs> Is my birthday party not important to be one of your drinking occasions? Interesting. Yeah. It's so interesting. You were diagnosed with an aggressive type of cancer. You had two young children. How much were you worried for your life? And I want to ask that question because we all navigate these experiences so differently. And some people think, I get to the end of the treatment. And yes, this is really traumatizing and hard, but people kind of think and know they're going to be all right. Did you have that notion, I'll be all right? Or did you have this big old fear hanging over you? What if, what if, what if? How was it for you? Well, it's so interesting because I know lots of people say when they get their diagnosis, they initially panic and think, this is it, this is how I'm going to die. And I didn't have that experience at all. I was initially 
<laughs> it sounds ridiculous now. I think I was partly in shock and partly very naive. But I, I was I was just like, this is a bit bloody inconvenient. I'm going to have to go through all of this. I, I know it's going to be grim, this cancer treatment. But then, you know, in like a year's time, I'll be fine. I, I, it didn't even cross my mind that I might die of breast cancer. I, In my mind, I thought of breast cancer as being something that's kind of very treatable. And, um, you know, you always see those news stories about how survivable breast cancer is these days. And I, I felt kind of, not I was just about to say I felt very positive about it I did not feel positive going into chemo because I was obviously dreading that um but I felt positive about my prognosis and about the outcome and I felt confident that I would survive it it was basically at the end of so I had chemotherapy mastectomy surgery radiotherapy and then some further adjuvant chemo because I didn't have a complete response to the chemo and also because like you say it was a grade three uh, triple negative um so it was quite a long period of treatment and then at the end of it I I was sort of expecting there to be a moment where they said that's it you've got the all clear you're free to go you're cancer free and um and they didn't I just had a very depressing conversation with a surgeon who said you know because you didn't have a complete response to chemo and it was multifocal I had two separate tumors in the breast it was in the lymph nodes it was you know grade three stage three triple negative um she said your risk of recurrence is comparatively high it's like 40 percent and I said okay so if it comes back would would I have to have chemo again and then like would I be treated again and then get better again and she was like no if it comes back it's a case of managing it you know and until you die And, and with the type of aggressive triple negative breast cancer I had I sort of knew I wasn't going to be one of these people that lives for like you know, 15 years with breast cancer, it would be a, probably wouldn't be that long. So, um, so she, she was like, I mean, the good news is because it's so aggressive, if it's going to come back, it's going to come back quickly. So once you hit that five year mark, then you are kind of out of the woods in a way. And I was like, five years, quite, quite a long time away. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I just remember walking out of there thinking, right, so if I understand this correctly, there's like a 40% chance I'm going to be dead in the next five years. Like it just, it that was the point where I really, really struggled. It's like it only hit me then at the end of treatment. And I, I found that, I found that really, really hard. That was my lowest point for sure. And do you feel now that it was important for your surgeon to have that conversation with you? Or do you feel maybe if she hadn't said it the way or he hadn't said it the way it was portrayed to you, you would still be where you are now, maybe without this incredibly huge fear and worry? I'm not as, I'm, I'm wondering as I'm saying. To be honest, I'm very torn on that question because I understand... I know from speaking to women with secondary breast cancer that lots of women feel like the symptoms of secondary breast cancer were not properly explained to them. The risk was not properly explained to them. They walked away kind of feeling that they were done with cancer. And so they, you know, they didn't necessarily follow up on symptoms quickly enough. And they 
I, I know that lots of people with secondary breast cancer feel very strongly that there should be more information rather than less. And they should tell you your risk and tell you what all the symptoms are and tell you what to look out for. But then on the other hand is the fact that I did have a complete meltdown when I when I had that conversation. And my oncologist, who I saw after that conversation, um, she said to me, that doctor should never have said that to you. And I was like, oh, so it isn't true. And she was like, no, it's like factually correct, but it just doesn't help you to hear it. So I don't know. Yeah, you know what I wonder? Communication, isn't it, is key with with treatment, especially in cancer care. And we know some doctors are amazing at communicating and feeling their way into the person. And sometimes they can't guess, second guess. Some women want the information. Like I have so many women that say to me, I really yeah. wanted the information about what menopause would be like um, as soon as they put me on a long-term anti-endocrine treatment. And some women say, well, I'd rather see how it goes because I don't want to worry about everything that might happen or, or might come. And I think so many women would say, I would have liked more information about maybe what menopause would mean for me after they've started anti-endocrine treatment. And some women say, I'd rather not know because I worry about everything that might happen. And so it's really difficult for a doctor to second guess how you are wired as a patient and, and what they think is helpful or not helpful. And at the end of the day, I think so many of us have been told stuff by the doctors that was really helpful and also that was really unhelpful. And we are where we are, all of us, and we're grappling with a lot of what's been said. And my mind always went to, if they said nine positive things, my mind would have focused on the one negative thing. And I would have gone over and over and over that again, uh, not really remembering the nine positive things. And that was just my brain playing tricks on me. Yeah, and I think that's really, really normal. It's so normal, isn't it? It's, it's really normal to feel like that. I feel like our brains are designed to focus on the negative. It's there keeping us safe it's, that's why our brains are designed that way they're not designed to make us happy they're designed to keep us safe so they always look for the worst case scenario but yeah it doesn't help in a situation like this so when you are then you have this low moment in or this lowest moment in your recovery at the end of your treatment the world around you was opening up it was post-covid celebrations and people are getting together in their gardens and remember the time we had this lovely hot summer and everyone was out and mingling and we had barbecues and all of that and people would have big glasses of rosé and um bubbly bubbles and with that fear did that change your drinking or did you initially continue to drink some alcohol because you thought it was just normal and what people did and polite you didn't want to be rude, did you? <laughs> it's, it's so interesting because there is this kind of cognitive dissonance where you're being pulled in two different directions where I knew the facts and the statistics about drinking alcohol and breast cancer risk. And I, I knew that drinking alcohol increases my risk. But then at the same time, I had this feeling of, kind of wanting to show my friends and family that I wasn't different, that I hadn't been changed by cancer, that I was kind of still me. And I didn't want to turn up to a dinner with friends and be like, oh, I'm not drinking. And for them to feel like they couldn't enjoy their glass of wine because like old cancer face had come along <laughs> and to, to like spoil the party. 
so I was like I was very torn between those two things and I think that's really common as well but so actually when you unpick it in a putting people into a priority ladder you were almost prioritizing other people's feelings before your own benefits and health isn't it sometimes we do that don't we it's making sure people are right people are happy people are feeling comfortable with you and who you are now yeah 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 there's absolutely an element of that like people pleasing but then the thing about people pleasing is it's actually very rarely about the other person it's really often about making yourself feel comfortable and just feeling like I'll be a lot happier in this situation if everyone else is happy so it's kind of avoiding that discomfort for yourself because the reality is your friends would probably your friends would say well you've just had cancer that's fair enough I I totally understand why you don't want to drink alcohol even if you haven't just had cancer people should be able to decide whether or not they want to drink alcohol and probably these days most of us have in our friendship groups people that don't drink and we see now how that it how it can totally it doesn't have to affect anybody else's evening or anybody else's relationship with how they drink a person who chooses not to drink is not a judgment on a person who does drink that's i think that's a tricky element of it because you don't ever want to be perceived as sanctimonious or judging or that you're feeling like or that you're you know better than anyone else because you've managed to not drink alcohol and there's definitely there's definitely a school of thought among some people which is like oh like cheer up have a drink stop Uh, don't worry about it and um I don't know I, I definitely I have a few friends who are like, yeah, like a shot, have a drink. And, and, and my, my response is kind of, yeah, life is short. Like I bloody know it now. So I kind of want to make it as long as I can. And also I always feel I was a mirror. I think when you said you're not a reflection on the person who continues to drink, I think that is right in the, you know, it makes sense when you say, but I think in the reality, when you turn up at a dinner party and everyone is planning to get wasted because that's a lot of times what people do (laughs) and you are the person who doesn't drink you're almost a mirror to the person who drinks because everyone knows we shouldn't drink perhaps quite as much as we drink right it's called like there is hardly anyone who would say that there is no problem with alcohol we all know that there are risks to drinking alcohol especially drinking more than what is recommended and what is recommended is so little I hardly know anyone that drinks as little, right? It's the amount, the, the units are so little. There aren't many people I know who drink that little. So when I went to dinner parties and everyone would continue to drink, I feel like I was almost a mirror and people could see where they were going wrong almost in a way and that was make them uncomfortable. I think yeah. my not drinking made people feel uncomfortable I didn't want them to be uncomfortable I wanted them to have a great evening like you say it's got nothing to do with me that and people do they have a great time anyway but initially there is a bit I always worried that people would think oh my gosh I've got to sit next to Danny a she doesn't drink so conversations are going to be a certain way because they are aren't they They're, my conversations are different at 11 o'clock in the evening when everyone else is singing karaoke already <laughs> and so I feel like I was a little bit of a mirror to people and there was a, it brings home a bit of a discomfort to the people that carry on drinking 
maybe a little bit of self-reflection creeps in in a, in a moment where they just want to have a good time. What did you do then? Did you continue to drink sometimes and then you would get up the next morning and you'd feel guilty because you know the statistics and you thought, why did I do that? Or how did you navigate it? So I would say that drinking less alcohol absolutely depends on the situation and it depends where you're going, who you're going to see, how that person that person's relationship with alcohol, how you know they're going to be with you around alcohol. So when I first started drinking less alcohol, but before cancer, let's just make it about just drinking less alcohol in general. Um, there were certain friends that I I knew if I turned up to a dinner and said, I'm trying not to drink, I'm just gonna have like one glass of wine, they would be like, What why are you doing that? Like they would they would not respond in a supportive manner. So it would be more, um, you know, we'd get to a bar, I'd say, oh, I'll get some drinks. And then I could get myself a tonic that looks like a gin and tonic or drinks for everyone else. And then during dinner, there's like wine in the middle and everyone's filling up their glasses as they're drinking. You just don't really have to drink your wine because the more that other people drink, the less they notice. So it's kind of stealth sobriety. So there's, there's that. Another thing I found was if you think your friends might be open to it, just talk to them about it and say, I'm really trying to drink less alcohol. Oh, do you think when we go to that restaurant, we could not, should we try having an alcohol-free dinner? See how, see how it is. And I'm sure you've got friends that will say, yeah, oh God, I'm trying to drink less alcohol as well. That's a really good idea. Let's go to this place. It does like a great kombucha. Or yeah, the, the other thing is um, there are so many, uh, there are so many more, delicious alcohol-free drinks now than they used to be so even just a decade ago if you didn't want to drink alcohol you had to have like a coke or an orange juice or something like just something really sugary and gross whereas now there are so many nice alcohol-free options and they're like grown-up sophisticated drinks that taste really delicious and also feel like feel like a treat you know, so you can, you can almost feel like you're having a glass of champagne. If you have like a delicious sparkling kombucha in a flute, it feels like having a glass of champagne to me. I know there might be some people listening who are like, it's not the same as a glass of champagne. <laughs> nah, but I, th- I think not. it can be. <laughs> <laughs> but what about the evenings when you then drank more than you actually set out? Because I'm sure they have happened. What were your, were your feelings around those So one of the things I learned from writing Mindful Drinking was that it's so important not to beat yourself up over those evenings where you drink more than you plan to, because one of the most common things that happens is that people try to cut down on drinking alcohol, then they have a night out where they drank more than they planned to, then the next day they're like, I'm a failure. I did. Also, they've got anxiety as well, so it's exacerbated. They just think, I'm a failure, I can't do it, I try to drink less, alcohol has won in this situation, I might as well just go back to drinking normally. And they kind of give up. Whereas if you change your attitude and say, well, I drank more than I intended to, that's going to happen. That's really, really common, happens to everyone who tries to drink less alcohol. Um, What can I learn from it? That's one of the things that really helped me look at a situation as a learning experience and you can almost see it as a positive you can say oh I got absolutely hammered last night this is very 
useful information for me. I can see exactly what happened, where I went, who I spoke to, what was the kind of perfect storm of events that led to me drinking too much. And then you can think, how, how can I respond differently in the future? And I think that makes a really big difference because if you don't see it as I've failed or succeeded, it's just part of the process because it's an ongoing process. There's no kind of end point where you're going to feel like you've cracked it. It's, a, it's like a practice. I recorded a podcast episode that was called Alcohol and Me quite a few months back. And I sort of spoke about my own journey of when I really, I decided I could only cut it out. I couldn't moderate because I'm that sort of person. And so it would be better. It would have been better for me to say I'll have three glasses of wine a week, for example, because that would have maybe calmed me down as well. My anxiety was awful. And maybe sometimes half a glass of wine would have been quite nice for me to just sort of calm me down in a way, you know, without the hangover, without everything. But I decided I had to cut it out. Um, it was the only way for me to really drink less. So I, I, I knew I wasn't sort of the person to moderate. But I, what was the biggest learning curve for me was to decide why am I doing what I'm doing and then to articulate that with the people around me. And I wonder if people at home are listening to you thinking, yeah, 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 I totally get it. What Rosamond says, it's the sort of peer pressure. It's the pressure from our friends. And is it that we are thinking we should drink so that we still fit in with everyone else? We want to be normal. We want to be seen, like you said, cancer doesn't change us, so that we sustain our normal friendships and everything. And so do we actually think we should drink to please our surroundings and the people around us? Or do we drink because we really feel we need to take the edge off? Because if you know the reason, then you would be doing something totally different, isn't it? Because if you know you're drinking because you need to take the edge off, because like you said earlier, you're the person who comes down from putting the kids to bed and then you open that bottle of wine and you have that glass of wine or with cooking your dinner, then you're going to have to find different strategies to when you're thinking it's sort of your peer pressure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I do want to say, first of all, that what you said about anxiety is true. Obviously, an alcoholic drink can take the edge off those feelings in the moment. But long term, it makes anxiety much, much worse. And learning about that and understanding why and how that happens, I think really helps because when you know that's gonna, that's why they say anxiety. <laughs> that's why people can feel yeah. kind of like paranoid and anxious the day after a, a night of drinking. It's because of the effect that alcohol has on the receptors in the brain that, you know, kind of dampening your inhibitions in the moment just makes it much, much worse the next day. So I think knowing that really helped me. And also, if you're if you're listening to this podcast, then probably you've had a menopause or on by cancer treatment. And there are so many symptoms of menopause that are made worse by drinking alcohol. Um, well, you know, well, anxiety is one of them, but also brain fog, you know, concentration. Hot flushes. Yeah, hot flushes, hot flushes, exactly. Or skin concerns. Yeah. Oh my god, my skin <laughs> since menopause. Yeah, your skin is obviously much better if you drink less alcohol like gaining weight especially around your middle which i know gets worse after menopause and that's drinking less alcohol helps with that um 
so it's not also your sleep it really improves your sleep because alcohol disrupts your sleep a lot i feel like there are lots more things oh also your when you talk about skin dry dryness like dryness everywhere not just your skin like dry everywhere Everywhere. (laughs) it's that is really exacerbated by alcohol alcohol is really dehydrating for your skin um so yeah there are lots of reasons to cut down and i think knowing about them really helps and what you were saying about um complete sobriety versus moderate drinking I I think your experience is really, really common that it is a lot easier in many ways to not drink at all than it is to drink occasionally. Because if you've decided that you don't drink, then it's just, you've made that decision. It's one decision and you've made it. Whereas if you're a moderate drinker, then, you know, every day is, am I going to drink today? How much am I going to drink? What am I going to drink? Yeah. And so for me, it was so easy to make the decision. To make the decision was really easy. And then I feel like the same with any cancer care, and especially when you're being put into sort of menopause, Mm -hmm. you've got to plan for everything, right? You've got to plan. How are you going to treat the symptoms of a painful dry vagina? How are you going to treat? How are you going to plan for a dry mouth or any of the other symptoms that we might experience, whether they're physical or mental? And it's almost like someone needs to help us a little bit. But what, what happens at the moment, everyone is stumbling through, right? And so I decided to cut out alcohol and to stop drinking. But then I had to plan how I was going to do that in reality. And for me, that was planning my line of excuses. And once I've written down and decided what excuse I'm going to come up with at what particular social situation, I was done. And then it was a, a, a matter of practicing. So in some situations where I didn't know people that well, I would just say, I'm better off for not drinking, almost with a little wink in the eye. And people might have thought I had a problem with alcohol. Like you said earlier, you know, people that didn't really know much about me, they would have thought, I'm not going to ask her if she was a drunk. <laughs> That's very uncomfortable. And I just left it at that. And, and for some other people that I felt I could be a little bit more honest with, I would say, do you know what? I'm really worried about cancer recurrence. I have to do everything I can to keep this monster at bay. And even the friends who had a problem with me not drinking would go, hands up, I get you. But I had to almost plan to be able to say those words, that sentence. And I was nervous about saying it. I was anxious. It was talking about my fears. But actually, it really helped me because that was the end of it. There was no more oh gosh, you're a bit of a party pooper, go and have a drink, we're celebrating, have a glass. There was none of that because I was quite honest with my fears and then people really want the best for you and if you think the best for you is not to drink. And so for me, it was brilliant to just have a few excuses, whatever situation. And I wonder if people at home think, yeah, I could come up with a few excuses for different sort of scenarios for when I don't want to be drinking. But I think, like you say, what was easier, once I had decided, I decided once. Just earlier this year, we went on a lovely holiday with friends and I decided to have, I think it was a little cocktail or something. And after that one cocktail, the next day, I thought, hmm, should I have another cocktail today? Oh no, I'll have a little beer. On the third day, I thought, hmm, should I have a drink today with dinner or not? And the conversation started up in my head again and I thought, this is insane. Mm. I do not want to be thinking every day. Should I, could I, shall I, too much, too little. I was like, no, this is a head fuck. No way. Yeah. <laughs> and so I know for my little brain, 
it's just easier to go yes or no. Yeah, and it's quite funny actually because look, I think I get lots of DMs on social media and messages from people who have read Mindful Drinking, and one of the things that I hear a lot is that they bought Mindful Drinking because they thought sobriety was not for them. They thought they would never be able to do it, and then having having read the book and moderated their drinking and cut down a lot then they reached a point where they were like actually i'm drinking so little i don't actually need this it's not doing anything for me and i they they realize like you it's easier to just decide to be sober and they and those people are sober now and i get lots of messages from people saying that but then also i get messages from people saying I still love having a glass of champagne to celebrate something yeah. or a cold G&T on a hot day or I love those treats but now I really I really enjoy them when I have them and I really I appreciate them in the context of this is an occasional treat for me it's not a everyday habitual thing and it's it just makes it so much better so it's about working out what kind of person you are and what the reasons are you're drinking and and if you can if you can do the occasional drink thing or if it's easier to just do complete sobriety and i think when you have that occasional drink we know it's not going to make your cancer come back it's not going to give you cancer and i think sometimes we feel so much risk the responsibility is huge isn't it to think it's all on us now active treatment's finished it's all on us and you want to just do the best you can and, and everyone does it in different ways. You know, some people exercise, some people don't. Other people throw themselves into food. You've researched so much for your second book, Reconstruction. There are so many things different people do, mm. but no one thing is ever going to be the reason. Like we know lots of people that are very old and they've smoked all their lives, right? And then we have marathon runner vegans and they get cancer when they're young. And so it's just bad luck as well. And at the same time, we can help live a good life. And we know some things make sense, like not smoking or not having too much processed food or not drinking too much. And it's kind of also thinking we're not going to give alcohol or one thing, the totality, the rule over us. Because one thing isn't ever going to make that difference. And because if we think that way, we always think we're responsible for it all and we're not. We're just doing our best. Exactly, exactly. There are no absolutes like there is nothing that you can say prevents cancer it's all about risk reduction and increased risk isn't it so everything is kind of on a scale so drinking less alcohol will reduce your risk doing exercise will reduce your risk and those are positive things that you can do to reduce your risk of getting cancer again and um i think it's empowering to know that and I like having that information and I like being able to feel like I'm doing something positive for my body. And I just would hate anyone to feel, you know, guilty or blamed or as if in any way something they've done has caused their cancer because we, we don't know it's so kind of multifactorial cancer diagnosis and there are so many variables and nobody can really say, unless you have a genetic mutation when it's kind of very clear, Nobody can really say why it's happened. And so now, do you sometimes drink? Yes, I do drink occasionally, but it is very occasionally. So now I have um, one of the things I recommend in the book, and which I think is great advice, is to download one of those (laughs) 
used to download one of those drinking apps oh, you know the okay. ones where you can log your alcohol free days so there are loads of them there's one called try dry one called dry days with drink aware uh, the alcohol charity do one as well and it's if you like tick tick off the days when you have a alcohol free day then they kind of stack up and there is a real sense of um achievement i guess in watching your alcohol free days stack up and also if you when you log when you have a drink and you log it in there depending on which app you have some of them tell you you know they 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 kind of they ask what your goals are at the beginning and then they can give you facts throughout it so they can say by not drinking this week you've saved this much money or this many calories or whatever it is that your health goals are so i think that's really good because just by bringing awareness to something helps you moderate it so just knowing how much you drink i love that yeah i think it's really good and i think what you said earlier about planning and preparation is so important i think preparation is everything so like you were saying about having reasons and things to say to people who might offer you a drink um it's that but it's also like knowing what the alcohol free drink options are at the place where you're going so that you can turn up knowing what you're going to order rather than be at the bar and be put on the spot and just go uh wine yeah you're you're kind of panicked (laughs) so yeah that that kind of preparation is really good as well and not having if you're a person that um often drinks at home if you like a glass of wine dinner or you I've got in the habit of making a G&T after the kids are in bed or whatever it is. If you can just make it a tiny bit more difficult to have that drink. So just don't have it in the house. Don't have it. Don't do that deal where you get six bottles of wine for, you know, because it's 25% off or whatever it is. Don't have lots of alcohol in the house. So if you really want to drink, you have to go to the shop or, or to a pub and get one you know just make it a bit more difficult and also stock up your fridge with delicious alcohol-free drinks because like we were saying there were so many nice ones now and it's not just yeah kombucha now there are all these functional non-alcoholic drinks cbd cbd drinks, drinks. yeah, yeah exactly. there's a mushroom ashwagandha <laughs> yeah. in there and they and they kind of make yeah, you feel good true. without the alcohol and also they and also they are delicious and they fulfill that kind of that ri- that element of ritual of taking something out of the fridge and kind of going shh and like clink and putting yes. the ice in and that that little ritual, which is the really nice thing about making a drink, you can get that with an alcohol-free drink. Yeah, I tell you what, I've always made for years now. I've made a mixture of kombucha. I add a bit of tonic water, so it gives it that sort of bitterness, you know, that sort of GMT um, and and then a lot of ice and some lemon, and I make a long drink out of it, and it totally gives me that can is yeah. opening kombucha, <laughs> that sort of sparkling, that sort of taste, the ice in it. It's definitely that ritual of, oh, this is lovely, but it's also good for me. I love the idea of the app because it's reframing. Because if we just think, I need to drink less because I worry it's bad for me. I worry I've had cancer. I worry if I drink, it's bad for me. I've been drinking too much. It's going to make my menopausal symptoms worse. Bad hangovers, bad for everything. Oh, I'm so bad. I'm so weak. I can't. And so it's all negative, isn't it? Because all you think of, I can't, I shouldn't drink because it's bad for me. But the app is reframing it. And that's what I always talk about. 
whatever we're talking about, food, uh, medication, whatever it is, you need to focus on, or you can focus on, whatever you focus on expands. And we want to focus on the positives. And so the app is focusing on, wow, the calories you can save by not drinking, the money you save. Um, imagine if the app would tell you how much goodness you added to your microbiome by adding kombuchas instead of beer. Yeah. And that is great, right? So it's so many positives. And if we focus on those, the whole thing becomes more positive rather than thinking, oh, I shouldn't drink. It's bad for me. Exactly. It's trying to find those positivity pockets. Yeah, when I talk to people about why they want to drink less alcohol, often they will say the negative things. Like they'll say, oh, I know it's increasing my risk of breast cancer and it's definitely disrupting my sleep. And as I get older, I'm really noticing my skin is looking like, you know, that kind of parched alcohol skin. And, um, and, I kind of encourage them to turn it around the other way and reframe it, like you say, to to think, wow, I had an alcohol-free day today, so that's improving my skin and it's going to improve my sleep tonight and it's reducing my risk of cancer. So just turning those things around and looking at them in a positive way is a really, really big help because otherwise it just feels like a slog. just feel like I'm constantly battling <laughs> not to do this thing that I want to do because I know it's bad for me, whereas... I have a, a, another friend who's sober and she said, she once said to me, I feel like the only thing I've given up is hangovers. I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything. I don't feel like I've lost anything. I still have my social life. I've realized I can do sober socializing, which by the way, is totally doable. I, I think people are so nervous about sober socializing, especially if um, like you and I, you've been drinking from a young age, it's, you reach a point in your 30s where it's like, actually, have I ever done socialising sober? I don't know if I ever have. And then it's a case of practice. It really is a case of practice. Like once you do it one or two times, you'll be nervous initially. And then you'll realise it's actually fine. In many ways, it's easier. So you don't have the alcoholic drink that's kind of numbed your inhibitions and made you more relaxed. But you do have your wits about you. And you're more likely to you know, remember that person's name and you're less likely to say something that you might regret later and um, you might find you have more fun. What I um, realised, but that was months in because it took me a long time, way more than a couple of sober social, it took me months to feel okay about not drinking in social situations. And as a person, I feel like it's really changed me. Like my new friends that I've met by being sober really got to know a different me because they've just met the sober me rather than the me that had dancing on tables three o'clock big Avril spritzes <laughs> you know it's a different there was a different person to me yeah. and she was fun that Danny was fun like that Danny my husband met was a fun girl she didn't worry about constantly dying you know she didn't worry about tomorrow <laughs> she was up till 4am and she just let loose at times but there was definitely this one moment where I really felt in my sobriety, where I really felt empowered when I realized, like, wow, you, Danny, have been turning up as you in every situation for these past six months, exactly how you are and who you are. And I, I had goosebumps when I suddenly realized that that's a big deal. That is amazing. I was so proud of myself for not having to use a drug to relax me or to make me feel more happy or to make me feel more, I don't know, you know, just loose. Or I was like, oh my God, that's actually quite a big deal. I was really proud of myself and that gave me a lot of 
oomph to think, yeah, you carry on, go girl. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, you People have will accept you for who you are, for who you are. Exactly. And you absolutely <laughs> should be proud because it is a really big deal and it's a hard thing to do. And when you're not drinking, you have to kind of feel all of your feelings you have to feel nervous when you meet yes. new people and you have to you know it, it, like it can be hard but then like you say that feeling you get after it when you've actually done something as your authentic self sorry <laughs> sorry for sounding uh yeah, yeah. but it is your authentic self you're as yourself and it's you can feel very proud of yourself afterwards mm. thank you so much for chatting to me about it's a really emotional topic for people and people always think, oh, it, I, it should be so easy to just cut down on booze or to drink less, but it's actually really hard. And I hope people at home realise that it's a challenge. Yes. It needs some planning. Absolutely. Yeah, planning is everything. I would say one more bit of advice, one more bit of advice that I have found really helpful is to not drink. If you are trying to moderate your drinking rather than do sobriety, um, is to not drink to deal with difficult or stressful situations. Don't, uh, uh, please avoid that thing where you feel like, oh, I'm just like, like so stressed out today, I just need a drink to take the edge off. Because it never, ever, ever helps. Honestly, it just makes you feel worse the next day. So that is one of my rules now. I only drink in a celebratory capacity. I only drink with other people and at a time when it's fun. So, so that I can fully enjoy it celebratory and sociable yeah you had so many great nuggets of advice in there and i hope people are there with notepad and pen thinking what kind of drinker am i what situations do i struggle with and i think when you sort of break it down you can then come up with a little plan on the other hand i sometimes think gosh i wish there was something else so if anyone has anything else <laughs> that is not a class a drug <laughs> it's not weed because that makes me feel really sleepy <laughs> That is something that isn't harmful, but that could just beam me into this, I don't know, carefree Danny every now and then. Tell yeah. me. <laughs> there are apparently some mushrooms that can do that, I've heard. Yeah, I know. <laughs> something. Next time we'll be off our face for dancing in the woods somewhere. <laughs> just that every now and then, that sort of letting go, that would be lovely <laughs> without the hand Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for your time oh. and our reference to everything you've mentioned and your books in the show notes oh, thank you so much and thank you for all the work you do around this it's so amazing oh, i hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode and i really really hope that many of you are going to think about the conversation i had with these fabulous fabulous rosamond over the next few days, over the next few weeks, and perhaps you want to think about how you want to embark your September and October. Many people do sober October anyway, and that is coming up in just a few weeks time. And you might be thinking, actually, I'm going to try sober October. How does it feel if I cut out booze for a few weeks? Many of you might think, actually, I'm happy where I am and everything seems to be sort of going quite easily. Or maybe you might think, do I need to come up with a little cheeky excuse that I can use in social situations to make it easier for myself to not drink? Whatever it is for you that you want to take away from today's podcast episode, I hope it helps you to navigate the next few weeks, the next few months of your life, drinking or not drinking, whatever you choose to do. 
Until I speak to you again next week, a little reminder, get your walking shoes out the cupboard. Maybe you need to get yourself a new pair of trainers. Many of us are going to walk an awful lot over the next few weeks. And I really hope that you're all going to listen to our podcast, Walking. We're going to connect you to one another. Wherever you are, we're going to find your walking buddies and we're going to work towards our big fundraiser walk beginning of December. I can't wait and yeah, I'm really excited. But for now, I'm going to love you and leave you and I'll chat to you next week. Bye.